in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, baptism has the function of breaking down racial barriers. What's happening is the Holy Spirit is converting people who are Gentiles. The church was initially Jewish, and it's converting Gentiles, an Ethiopian eunuch, um, and so forth. And they're coming in, they're being baptized. Uh, what was happening was that baptism served the function of making people into followers of Jesus. You die to, to your old selfish self with Christ, and you're raised to live in Christ. So it was creating a church that was both Gentile and Jewish. That's the Christian story. That's the voice of the late, great Glenn Stassen, professor at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Today's episode concerns baptism and the racial politics of the Nazi era. In most parts of the U.S., debates about baptism involve how much water should be used, things like that, dunking, sprinkling, or pouring. These are the things Christians in America typically focus on. In Nazi Germany, baptism was literally a matter of life and death. And knowing this begs a complete reevaluation of baptism and its meaning. By the time we get to the end of this discussion, you'll either be transformed or absolutely furious. Get ready. Today we begin a conversation about baptism and how just about everything you thought about it is probably wrong. It's been almost 85 years since Nazi persecution turned violent on November 9, 1939, the night we know as Kristallnacht or the November Pogrom. What can we learn from this period of history that might inform us about our own time? What forces were at work then that we might identify in our own country today? And how might we better understand the role of the church, an institution that seems to call forth the very best and the very worst from us? Thank you for joining me on this journey. I'm your host, Reverend Stephen D. Martin. Traditional German Lutheran views on the meaning of Christian baptism are deeply rooted in the theological insights of Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer who significantly shaped the theology going forward. Baptism within this tradition is understood not just as a symbolic act, but as a means of grace and a sacrament instituted by Jesus Christ himself. It signifies the washing away of sin, the death and resurrection of Christ, and the believer's incorporation into the Christian community. Lutherans hold that baptism is God's act of offering and creating faith in the individual's heart, rather than an individual's declaration of faith or a mere entry ritual into the Christian community. This understanding emphasizes the passive role of the baptized rather than achievements of the individual. Moreover, traditional German Lutheran theology teaches that baptism has lifelong significance. It is not only the beginning of the spiritual life, but also a promise that God will continue to work in the baptized individual's life. This perspective is encapsulated in Luther's concept of the baptismal life 
a life of daily repentance and renewal in which a Christian continually returns to the promises made in baptism. Infant baptism is widely practiced and supported within this tradition based on the belief that God's grace and promises extend to all, including children. Lutherans argue that baptism as a means of grace does not require the cognitive ability to believe before it can be effective. Instead, faith is nurtured and grows within the community of believers through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, which are believed to be at work in baptism. So, what does baptism have to do with politics as the Nazis were coming to power? Well, remember that the church-state relationship in Germany is very different from that in the U.S. At this point, it will come as no surprise to you that a little historical background is necessary to fully understand this complex relationship. At the beginning of the 19th century, the Holy Roman Empire a conglomerate of various German-speaking states with the emperor as its nominal head, was dissolved following the Napoleonic Wars. The Congress of Vienna in 1814 through 1815 restructured the German territory into a loose confederation of sovereign states, the German Confederation. In these states, the relationship between church and state was generally close with many regions having established churches, either Protestant or Catholic, that were supported by the state and played significant roles in education, social services, and public life. The authority of the church in these matters often went hand in hand with the political objectives of the state, reflecting a mutually beneficial partnership. The revolutions of 1848, a series of interconnected revolutionary movements across Europe, including the German states, brought demands for political and social reform. Among these were calls for freedom of religion and the reduction of state control over the church. While the revolutions ultimately failed to achieve many of their immediate political goals, they did instigate discussions on national identity, liberalism, and the role of the church in a modern state, leading to gradual changes in church-state relations. One of the most significant events affecting church-state relations in the late 19th century was a conflict initiated by Chancellor Otto von Bismarck in the newly unified German Empire. The Kulturkampf, which literally means culture struggle, was a series of policies enacted in the 1870s aimed at reducing the political and social influence of the Catholic Church, which Bismarck viewed as a threat to the unity and stability of the empire. These policies, and this is very important to our story, included laws that placed the education and appointment of clergy under state control also expelled Jesuits from the empire, and required civil marriage. 
The culture conf led to significant tensions between the Catholic population and the Protestant-dominated Prussian state, and while some of its measures were later repealed, it left a lasting impact on the relationship between the church and the state in Germany. During World War I, the churches in Germany, both Protestant and Catholic, generally supported the war effort, reinforcing their ties with the state. This period saw a kind of sacred union where religious and national identities were often conflated in the service of the war. The churches provided moral and spiritual support to the soldiers and the home front, which in some ways strengthened their position in society, but also tied their fortunes closely to the fate of the German Empire. The Weimar Republic introduced a new constitution in 1919 that fundamentally altered church-state relations. It established a separation of church and state, in principle, by ending the state-church system, providing for freedom of religion, and instituting secular education as the standard. However, the churches retained a significant role in public life, including in the provision of social services and education. The Weimar era was marked by a high degree of political and economic instability, which affects the churches as well. Both the Protestant and Catholic churches sought to navigate this turbulent period by protecting their interests and adapting to the changing political landscape. The Catholic Center Party, for example, played a significant role in Weimar politics, representing Catholic interests. The rise of the Nazi regime under Adolf Hitler brought about a dramatic shift in church-state relations. Initially, the Nazis sought to co-opt religious groups to support their agenda. The Concordat between the Holy See and the German Reich in 1933 was a, an attempt to negotiate the position of the Catholic Church within the Nazi state. Similarly, the Protestant churches faced pressure to align with Nazi ideologies leading to the formation of the Deutsche Christen movement. When we come back, we'll take a look at how the Nazis bureaucratized racial politics and how the churches took note. When the Nazis came into power, they had a few enemies they wanted to blame for the loss of the war, etc. Socialists, Jews, racial minorities they deemed inferior. So let's just say you are a Nazi leader whose rhetoric has been aimed at excluding Jews from society, something that's easy to say in order to rile up the masses, but in reality, more difficult than you'd imagine to turn into a policy. So how do you do it? What makes a person Jewish and therefore a target for exclusion? When we think about this period, 
we rarely think about how, at least in the beginning, the government bureaucracy classified people into different categories. As soon as the Nazis came to power, the Aryan Paragraph was enacted to fulfill the Nazis' campaign promise. Now, remember, the Nazis didn't come to power and immediately set up the gas chambers and crematoriums. They began slowly, deliberately, testing public reaction with every move they made. They would apply pressure, sometimes getting a little pushback, or maybe a lot of pushback, but gaining ground with each push toward the extreme right. Small, popular programs would pave the way for horrific things to come. The Aryan Paragraph was a piece of law that specifically aimed to exclude Jews and individuals of Jewish descent from various sectors, including public service, the professional workforce, and membership in associations and organizations. This move was part of a broader strategy to marginalize, discriminate against, and persecute Jews and other groups deemed undesirable by the Nazis. Now, before we move on, I want to state the following very, very clearly. It is my position, and that of this podcast, that race is a purely artificial construct. There is not, nor has there ever been in all of human history, any kind of racial purity. I make this assertion based on both scientific and theological reasoning. While we can and must celebrate cultural and racial diversity, there is nothing in science or theology that allows us to see one group as superior to or separate from another. When I speak of Nazi racial constructs, know this in the back of your mind, before allowing their ideas to surreptitiously sneak into your brain. Moving forward, the bureaucratization of the Aryan paragraph involved weaving these discriminatory principles into the fabric of German legal and administrative systems, thereby affecting nearly every facet of life. One of the earliest and most significant steps in their process was the enactment of the Law for the Restoration of the Professional Civil Service in April 1933. This law marked Jews and other, quote, non-Aryans for exclusion from civil service positions, leveraging the bureaucratic machinery of the state to enforce racial discrimination. Civil servants were required to prove their Aryan ancestry, which typically meant providing documentation like birth and baptismal certificates dating back to their grandparents. This requirement placed a significant burden on individuals to affirm their racial purity according to the Nazi definition, effectively using the state's bureaucratic processes to institutionalize racial discrimination. Beyond the civil service, 
The Aryan paragraph was applied across various sectors, including the arts, academia, the legal profession, and healthcare, among others. For example, Jewish doctors and lawyers were barred from practicing, and Jewish academics were expelled from universities. Membership in professional associations and guilds was also restricted, further marginalizing Jews from German economic and social life. The bureaucratization of these policies did not stop with employment, but extended into the personal realm, affecting who could marry whom and which organizations individuals could join, including sports clubs and cultural associations. This broad application of the Aryan paragraph meant that the Nazi ideology of racial purity permeated the daily lives of all Germans, systematically isolating Jews and making discrimination a routine part of state operations. The implementation of the Aryan paragraph was a critical step in the Nazis' efforts to create a racially pure society, leveraging the power of bureaucracy to enforce their discriminatory laws. So, just to take a step back for a moment, remember that in a large country like Germany, it's not possible to legislate an idea by itself. The idea of, let's say, institutional racism must be calibrated and quantified. If, in the American South of the early 20th century, you're going to prohibit African Americans from, say, getting a mortgage and buying a home, you have to define what a black person is and is not. You can't just say, black people can't live here. But you have to construct a legal framework around this idea to make it a reality. Ideas become policy, and here's how the Nazis did it. The Nazi regime defined Jewishness primarily through racial and ancestral criteria, diverging significantly from religious or cultural definitions of Jewish identity. Their definition was enshrined in the Nuremberg Laws of 1935, specifically in the Reich Citizenship Law and the Law for the Protection of German Blood and Honor. According to these laws, Jewishness was determined by ancestry rather than religious practice, meaning that individuals who had converted to Christianity or were irreligious could still be classified as Jewish under Nazi racial laws. The Nazis used a pseudoscientific racial hierarchy to categorize individuals, focusing on lineage rather than individual faith or self-identification. The criteria for being considered Jewish included having three or four Jewish grandparents which was enough to classify someone as a, quote, full Jew under the Nuremberg Laws. These grandparents were defined as Jewish if they were members of a Jewish religious community. Thus, anyone with three Jewish grandparents was deemed a Jew, regardless of their own religious beliefs and practices. People with one or two Jewish grandparents were classified as Mishlinga, or mixed blood, specifically first degree for those with two Jewish grandparents and second degree for those with one. 
The distinction between full Jews and Mishlingah affected the severity of restrictions and persecutions individuals faced, although Mishlingah were still subject to many discriminatory laws. The definition of Jewishness as a racial identity rather than a religious or cultural one meant that the Nazis targeted individuals with any Jewish ancestry for persecution, regardless of their religious identity, religious affiliation, or cultural practices. The implementation of these criteria involved an extensive bureaucratic apparatus that required individuals to provide proof for their ancestry through birth and baptismal certificates, thereby embedding racial discrimination deeply within German society's legal and administrative frameworks. Well, that's a lot to digest. I think it makes sense to continue this conversation in the next episode, in which we'll talk about the Kirchenkampf, or church struggle, and how it put the church's doctrine of baptism to the ultimate test. In the meantime, a homework assignment for you. What do you believe about things like race, government policies that exclude certain people because of ideas like race or those that favor one group over another? How does Christian theology speak to the kind of real-world, life-and-death circumstances of war, poverty, health, reproductive rights, and immigration? Until next time, please tell someone about this podcast. And if you like what you hear and want to make sure these podcasts continue, become an accountability partner for me by joining the podcast Patreon page. This podcast is produced and written by me, Reverend Stephen D. Martin. I'd like to thank those who have taught me about this subject over the past 20 years. Robert Erickson... Susanna Heschel, Doris Bergen, Hartmut Lehmann, Victoria Barnett, Manfred Geilis, Wolfgang Krogel, Rudolf Weckerling, Richard Steigman-Gall, Rob Shank, and dozens of others. Please subscribe to this podcast, and please consider supporting it through visiting our Patreon page. Thank you, and join us for our next episode.